Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Love in Your Soul, a song by the Catawicks. This indie soul duo from Dayton, Ohio, is our featured Ohio music artist this week. So stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about them, how to find their music, and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, from all I read, Kevin Brame's priority was to be the best dad he could be. In 1999, he was 31 years old, living apart from his estranged wife, Carla, in Dayton, Ohio, but he took every opportunity he could to spend time with their sons eight-year-old Antonio, and five-year-old Dominique. He coached his son's soccer team, took them to museums, helped them with their homework. But his need to be a protector extended beyond his home. And six years earlier, Kevin joined the Dayton Police Department. He was following in the footsteps of his father, Jerry, who had retired as a Dayton detective. Kevin's mom, Rosemary Brame, gave an interview to the television show Dateline and said Kevin's ultimate goal in life was to be a good cop. His favorite assignment was bike patrol because it gave him more opportunities to interact with the people and become part of a neighborhood. Kevin was a pretty good athlete and he loved being able to patrol on the bike and be closer to the people he encountered, his mom said. The bike also kept Kevin in good shape. His mom couldn't help but recall when he was nine years old and got people to pledge money for a bike-a-thon fundraiser. It was one of those events where you pledge by the mile, and many of his pledgers were a little stunned to learn nine-year-old Kevin rode 32 miles that day. November 1, 1999, was an unseasonably warm and drizzly day. Kevin had gone to a court appointment related to his job. That was after working a late-night shift. That afternoon, Carla called him and said his sons wanted to see him. Kevin and Carla had separated after six years of marriage and had a custody arrangement involving the boys. The call that day was unexpected, 
but welcome. Kevin was more than willing and able to make time for his sons. Kevin picked up the boys, took them out to buy a new game video, then took them to Roosters, their favorite restaurant. Have you ever eaten at a Roosters? I've never eaten at a Roosters. I neither. Afterward, they stopped in to see Kevin's parents. It was his father Jerry's birthday. Kevin's parents, Rosemary and Jerry, they were divorced, but still close enough that they were having a little party at Rosemary's house. It was a very pleasant hour. Kevin and his sister Karen even made plans to take the boys on a trip to Minneapolis. But all good things must come to an end, and it was a school night. Kevin pushed the hour as far as he could, but he needed to get the boys home. As boys will do, they dragged their feet leaving the house, but a little after 8.30 p.m., Kevin had managed to coax Antonio and Dominique into the car. At 8.57 p.m., the phone at Rosemary's house rang. Rosemary picked it up. It was Carla. You need to get over here, she said. Kevin's been shot in the yard. Wow, this isn't even a half an hour later. No, look how fast life can change. The family jumped in the car and raced to Carla's home on Cherry Avenue. They were there in less than five minutes. But the police had gotten there first. The yellow tape was already up, and Kevin was dead. Rosemary collapsed on the ground. It wasn't difficult to determine what had happened. Darkness had fallen. Kevin had walked his kids to the door. Then, as he was walking back to the car, someone ambushed him, shooting him in the back with a shotgun, probably from the large bushes next to the brick house. Two neighbors heard the single gunshot. One called police. The other one, the one that lived right next door to Carla, ran and spotted Kevin on the ground. He banged on Carla's door. Carla told the neighbor she thought the popping sound was a car backfiring. Then she saw the form in her yard and recognized Kevin's white gym shoes in the dark. She called police. Whoever shot Kevin had been planning it detectives concluded. The Cherry Street home wasn't his home. It had to be someone who knew his routine, his schedule, someone who knew he was going to be there on a random school night. I think it's pretty horrible that they knew all that and they would shoot him right after he dropped off his kids, knowing he had two kids. Oh, absolutely. How cold of a person could you be to be sitting there and watching a father interacting with his sons and then shooting it? And, you know, for all that person knew, those kids were going to run out after hearing that shot. Oh, absolutely. And seeing their dad laying there. That didn't happen, but there was every every reason to expect it would. Right. Well, Kevin's funeral, it was a tremendous event. Hundreds of officers from around the state attended it, and neighbors came out to pay their respects to the officer they had become familiar with. But when it was done, it was time to get back to work. With Kevin being a police officer, there were literally hundreds of suspects. And as a result, hundreds of interviews that needed to be done. Detectives looked into almost every case Kevin had been on, hoping to identify someone who might have wanted revenge. Rosemary Brame said she also learned from people who knew Kevin that he thought he was being stalked. That was something he had never told his family though it didn't surprise her to learn that Kevin didn't want to worry them. In 2017, Detective Patricia Tackett told reporters the department was still getting a phone call or a letter 
about the 21-year-old case every few months. Several filing cabinets held the years of investigation, but it was as cold as a case could be. No arrests have been made. Police told reporters that Kevin's estranged wife, Carla, was mostly uncooperative. Soon after Kevin's death, she cut ties with the family and moved to Texas. She returned to Dayton once to answer more questions, but ignored later calls from the department, Tackett said. As the years have gone by, people who were key to the investigation have died, making it harder to resolve this case. One person who died was of significant interest back in 2003. Police even got a warrant to search the home of a man named C.D. McCoy. He used to work with Carla. He died in 2012. But in 2003, he told reporters the police had taken him downtown for questioning, accused him of having an affair with Carla and killing Kevin for $2,000. He denied it and was never charged. And so the search goes on. Rosemary Brame and her family created a website, justiceforkevinbrame.com. They're doing it in cooperation with the police, you know, to gather facts on the case and keep it in the public eye. Kevin just loved life so much, Rosemary told Dateline. He was so positive and was ready to get on with life. She keeps a diary about Kevin, adding it to the stories people have shared with her about her son. It is so wonderful to hear about the positive things that Kevin did in his short time on earth, she said. He was such a good and generous soul, and I miss him to the depth of my soul. It helps a lot hearing how he touched people, but it does not make up for the loss. I miss everything about my son, his laughter, his smile, Rosemary said. His brother and sister have lost a quintessential brother, and he was so loved by his loyal friends who still come by and visit me. And then Rosemary revealed a painful thought, the likelihood that there are people in Dayton who know exactly what happened. We know people know, she said. We know there are people here in Dayton who know. There's no way in a town the size of Dayton this shouldn't have been solved long ago. So there is currently a reward of up to $100,000 for information leading to an arrest in this case. The full color reward offer has been plastered on the Dayton Police Building for years. If you have any information, please call Dayton Police at 937-333-7109. Well, let's bring on our armchair detective to talk this out. Well, tonight with us, we have Jana Faulkner. She is our Dayton correspondent. Can I call you our correspondent, Jana? Absolutely. Wonderful. This is your third case, and you have just been exceptional. So you actually brought this case to our attention. So thank you for that, because it's uh, a tragic one and a very interesting one. Mm -hmm. Tell our listeners, remind them a little bit about who you are. Uh, My name is Jana Faulkner. I live in Dayton. I'm a married mother of one 12-year-old boy. (laughs) 
Um, I don't know what else you would want to know. Sounds like a handful right there. <laughs> right. Exactly. Probably your whole world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you probably. Yeah, well, right now we're on break, but we were running him from sport to sport to sport and school. So, but we're having a little bit of a break now. Uh, a forced that. break, but. Yes, a forced break. <laughs> maybe, maybe welcome in some ways. I'm not sure. Right, right. <laughs> Well, tell me why this case caught your attention and and what, you know, inspired you to want to do it. Well, um, for one, obviously it's unsolved, so it's a mystery. Um, It's obviously been, if you're from the Dayton area, it's most of the people in this area are aware of it because the family has put billboards up periodically with a $10,000 reward for information um, for anything that leads to a capture of the person who did this. And so obviously anybody who's from this area has seen those billboards from time to time and is aware that it's still unsolved. And I think that's really probably the tragedy of the whole thing is that this seemingly happy and just really kind police officer was just gunned down in brutal violence You know, I saw the family's website, and that has to be the best website I have ever seen for a case Mm -hmm. like this. They've done a really good job. It is so thorough. There is everything there Mm -hmm. you could possibly want to know. And they've done a good job of trying to keep his case in the open so that people don't forget that it hasn't been solved yet. That's so key because, you know, Mm -hmm. as I've said many times, there are thousands of unsolved cases, and there are not that many detectives and right. the ones that are going to get solved are the ones I think that are just out there, you know, that people aren't letting go. And I, I honestly, I think in this case, it may be one of the situations where the cops actually know who's involved, but don't have enough evidence. Well, that's, that's so often the case, but mm-hmm. let me ask you, the guy who was arrested back in, 2003. Well, I guess technically he wasn't arrested. He was brought in for questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy who had worked with his with Kevin's estranged wife, mm-hmm. his co-worker, her coworker. Yeah, C.D. McCoy was his name. He's he's deceased now. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I think I do think there's some involvement there, and I know we shouldn't say this because she's she is still alive. I think it's pretty significant that his ex-wife is uncooperative with police. I mean, she did come in for questioning just the one time, but has refused to be involved in any other way. And then has moved out of the area and taken his children out of his family's life. Right. I wonder, you know, this was a while back. Have you seen any indication that those kids have been able to come back and spend time with their grandparents? I haven't. I haven't. I mean, I think I believe the last that I heard from the grandmother was that she had not seen them. Oh, that breaks my heart. It does, doesn't that it? That's their heart. only connection left with him. I don't understand the point of that. I know relationships can very can get very complicated, but I don't I would think that you would want to be as cooperative as possible to catch the killer of your of the father of your children. I, you mm-hmm. know, how do you not? I mean, if she wasn't involved, my only thing is that this is where I do that um, devil's advocate thing. If she wasn't involved, I think her 
unwillingness to cooperate is because she is a natural suspect. So she's thinking, I'm not involved. I don't need to cooperate because there's no, I'm not involved. So right. that's my only thought. Like I'm all, I'm going to be a suspe- suspect regardless of my level of involvement or level of cooperation. So I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not guilty. I'm not going to cooperate. Well, there's always, a, there's always another thought too. Why don't you clear me so you can focus on who, you know, is really out there who did it. Right. You know, and then right. the motive would be if she was involved was to move the kids out of state or out of mm-hmm. town. Right. Which we don't know what was going on during their divorce. I think it was pretty contentious from what I can tell. Like they weren't get al- getting along. Right. But. Well, and it doesn't yeah. help that she called and said that his kids wanted to see him on a day when that normally would not happen. And then the other thing I will just throw out there, again, in the devil's advocate part, is police have said many times, I've seen them say these things in interviews, a lot of times when somebody is hiding something, it's not what you think they're hiding. You know, sometimes they're not, they're not cooperative because they're hiding something else that nobody even knows about. Right. And so it makes them look suspicious. So mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe there was, you know, a relationship she didn't want to Which come is, out. Which goes or, back to that coworker. And, you know, this kind of thing doesn't mean that money has to have changed hands. And I think that's what they were looking for was some sort of monetary payment to this coworker. But that doesn't mean that that's how this was arranged. Right. What do you think about that? There was a, it seemed like it was a specific number, $2,000. There has to be yeah. something there. Yeah, and but I, I, they've been kind of vague about what that was, the $2,000. I think he said that, that she he, gave him 2000 You know, I didn't hear that. All The only um, evidence of this that I found was him telling a reporter that police had accused him of taking $2,000. And I was like, that's a very specific amount. Where did the police, if they did indeed accuse him of that, where did they come up mm-hmm. with that figure? I don't know where that figure came from. Yeah. And uh, really from from what I've read about that whole situation, this guy wasn't very credible because I believe the the police then came back and said, we didn't do anything. And then they ended up bringing him in for questioning after that. So I don't know if this was just somebody who was like maybe wanting to insinuate themselves into the situation for notoriety. Oh, we've run into those. Right. Or... He had some, you know, had a maybe an unreciprocated crush on her and was trying to get some sort of reaction out of her. I'm not really sure what his whole intention was. And now that he's passed on, there's really no way to question what it, what his motives were. But I, part of me thinks he's just a red herring and, and really doesn't have anything to do with the actual case. Yeah. You know, it sounds like um, Kevin's family learned that Kevin thought he was being stalked, even though he mm-hmm. had never mentioned it to them. Mm-hmm. That could explain a lot, too, in terms of how would somebody know he was there? How mm-hmm. would somebody know he was getting his kids at night? That sort of thing. Because a stalker, you know, if they're not far behind you, they don't have to know far in advance. They could just Correct. be following along. And right. seeing when there is an opportunity. So I don't I don't know. What do you yeah. think of the stalker? 
I, I think, I, I mean, I think that's obviously if, if that's true, that he really did feel like he had somebody following him. Um, I believe that the police looked into any of his old cases and he had just been to court, I think earlier that same day for a case that he was involved in. So it's obviously a possibility. I, I just think that if they followed up on all the leads on that case and couldn't come with anything that would be a good enough clue, I guess, to maybe somebody who was involved in this that wasn't his wife, but it just seems like there's too little information on that part of it. She moved down to Texas, right? She did. Okay. Houston, I think. So the police had to have looked in. Did anybody move down before she this happened, or did anybody move down after it happened with her? If they looked in, they've not said. I, but I, I do think that she was involved with somebody, like known, like she had a relationship with someone at some point that people knew about. Um, so it wasn't like a secret relationship. And I just don't, I just don't understand. It, if you want to break up with somebody, just break up. You know, it, <laughs> I agree. I agree. And I, I know the thing with custody, you know, with children, I, I understand like not wanting to give your, your time up with your children or wanting the, the freedom to move to another state and not have to deal with custody issues. But I don't think that, you know, murder is the way to go about getting that freedom. <laughs> no. And think of your kids, you know, right. your kids love that person, that that person right. is half their world. Yes. And, and from all accounts, he was a really good and like loving and doting father on his boys. He really loved them and loved spending time with them. And they loved spending time with him, too. Yeah, clearly, clearly. Mm-hmm. Well, what is going to have to happen to solve this case? I mean, can they solve it short of a confession or by this point, are they just going to need a confession? I think at this point, that's really going to have to be a confession. You know, somebody leading somebody with either direct knowledge, not speculation or hearsay, but direct knowledge of I know that she called this person or I was the person who did this without any sort of confession. I don't think it's going to be solved. I just don't think there's enough clues out there that the police can follow up on. There's one other thing I would point out, a a reason why his estranged wife might have wanted to move away. And that would be if she thought herself was at risk of being harmed, that whoever had taken Kevin's life might have been gunning for her and the kids. For some reason, we don't know. Yeah, she was right. She was in the house. I think she had already even like closed the door and was in the back of the house because I'm pretty sure did she hear the shots? I'm trying to remember the if she had heard she the heard, shots. She heard a sound, and when the neighbor came over and said, Kevin's laying on the front yard, she mentioned she thought it was a something backfiring. So she okay. did hear something. I, I, I've heard gunshots. I never thought, oh, that's a car backfiring. And But I've heard a, a car backfire and thought, that's gunshots. <laughs> So okay. I've never thought the opposite. I don't know if that's if I'm not normal or if she's just being like trying to use some sort of common al- common misdirection. 
And this was 1999. Did cars still backfire in 1999? I, I mean, I they still think, backfire? I, mean, okay. I think, the, you know, those kind of older cars still existed, but okay. I don't, yeah, I mean, obviously it's been a long time since I've been anywhere near a car that would be, that would backfire like yeah, that. Yeah, 1999, I was still driving your 1986 <laughs> vehicle. Well, that's no. true, but did that backfire? No, I mean, but I mean, I'm sure 19, I'm sure 86, 85 cars backfired. It could have backfired. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so I, and I, that's the thing about the neighbor coming in and knocking on the door and saying Kevin's been shot, that to me is suspect in a way because I think I hear things in my neighborhood and I look out the window and see what it was. So the fact that maybe almost like she was waiting for somebody else to discover him. Yeah. I'm thinking of how brave that neighbor was because, you know, I heard a gunshot once in the neighborhood where I was living. I don't think I'd ever heard a bullet fired before. I knew exactly what it was the second I heard it. Mm -hmm. And my instinct wasn't to run outside to see who was shot. My instinct was to call police. I mean, I immediately picked them up and I said, I think I heard a gunshot. And they were like, yes, you're right. Get to the basement. I saw a video with a detective talking about um, the wife not cooperating and you can see a lot in tone and body language that that detective was just really annoyed that she could not get the information she needed to just close that door. Mm-hmm. So you know, right. that, you know how that has to frustrate detectives. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jana. Let's see, your last two cases were the uh, what happened to Sharon Pretorius case and home invasion, the Buck and Darth killings. And mm-hmm. you guys did an exceptional job. You, I'm saying you guys because I know your husband helped. You and your husband did exceptional jobs uh, looking into those for us. Yeah, so. my husband actually, I don't know if I told you this. My husband actually ended up getting in contact with a detective in Pennsylvania because he had been searching through the um, the Doe Project website where they post, oh no, I'm sorry, it was maybe Charlie Project. One of the two where they post pictures and information of Jane Doe and John Doe bodies that are found in areas. Right. And he found one um, that the time frame was very, was like just two weeks after she went missing. Um, The physical description was very similar. Um, Height was the same. Weight was about the same. Um, Eye color, hair color was all, all matched. The, um, they weren't sure about age, but they put her in the age of, I think, 16 to 21. Anyway, my husband pressed with this detective to get the body DNA samples right. compared. It did not end up being Sharon, but it was such a promising lead. But So we've continued to check the Charlie Project and the Doe Project just to see if we can come up with anything else that anyone else that may show up on that website. How wonderful with, that you, even yeah. after doing your homework and doing your armchair, you guys were still, you know, following that and mm-hmm. doing something that you thought needed to be done. Good for you. Well, Jana, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, since you're our official Dayton correspondent, I'm sure we'll be back with you uh, for another case. Okay, thank you. 
That's it for tonight, campers. Stop by our website, ohiomysteries.com, for photos, links, news clippings, and more on this and every Ohio Mystery episode. You know what else you'll find on that website? What? Links to every single musical artist we've featured on our episodes. So let's add another one tonight, Paula. Well, tonight we're featuring the Catawicks from the Dayton area and their brand new single, Loving Your Soul. And we've had them on before. We have. Very talented. The Catawicks are Allison Justice and Matt Washburn, and they've been performing together for almost a decade. Just this year, they won Battle of the Bands in Dayton. All right. 2020. The duo splits their time between Ohio and Nashville, so if you like this music, be sure to follow them on Facebook or Instagram and keep up with their careers on their website, thecatawicks.com. This is a perfect time to listen to that song we sampled at the start of the podcast. Here's the full version of Loving Your Soul by the Catawicks. Give it a listen, and we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery. You've got the world at your feet, oh, and I am. Just don't see it. And this world is mean, and this world is cold. So don't run too far, just stay in sick clothes. greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.